Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdal. Yeah, exactly. And in the scope of the problem is pretty immense. It hit me like I was in Hawaii. I was walking through like the parking lot of like a Walmart and I looked around and there was like literally like 2000 cars in the parking lot. And I was like, oh my gosh, each of those cars needs 10 kilowatt hours of energy to meet its daily driving needs. And then if you look at the entire U.S. fleet, it suddenly becomes even much larger. So basically, I just, you know, in the early days, this company did like a quick hand calc to figure out how much bulk amount of energy we need to put into that fleet what the associated quantity of ports were at the average power charge rate, and then quickly found out that the number of charging stations we need is like a large, very large amount. And I was like, hmm, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people working on this. This seems pretty messed up. So, you know, started to think about kind of that magic shortcut, right? That's the power node toolkit. We can just kind of shortcut that whole grid upgrading process, which by the way, utilities actually love because they just kind of want to get premium fast charging in their service territories without like a lot of bureaucratic holdup. They're heavily incentivized to do that. So we started to kind of think about what that would look like from a product and tech standpoint, and we put together the power node. Quincy, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It is great to have you. Thanks, Nick. It's good to be here. It's been fun chatting with you and getting to know you a little bit over the last couple of weeks. Yeah, absolutely. I feel the same way. For the folks listening in that don't know you as well as, why don't we start with your background and then we'll get into all things electric era and how you started focusing on EV charging. Yeah. So, I mean, my background's pretty off the beaten path, I guess, for most of the people in the industry. I spent the majority of my first career working in space at SpaceX, where I was a mechanical engineer. So in that role, I was basically doing deep tech development for a variety of different things at SpaceX, mainly on the SpaceX Starlink Constellation program. Mm, Got it. I was on that program for like five years. When we first started it, it was like, you know, a cube sat, like a tiny little satellite. And then over time, it kind of matured into what it ultimately is now, which is like these massive satellite buses that are flying around. There's 4,000 of them on orbit. I was in charge of the Gateway Ground Station antenna program for that business unit and basically was tasked with the global rollout of these large parabolic antennas that act as the terrestrial backhaul link for the satellites. So took that program from prototype to deployment on about three continents prior to leaving to found Electric Era. Wow. Yeah, so you have some solid experience in getting important and highly technical infrastructure deployed in the real world, which definitely ties into the EV charging. But I guess I'd also ask, you know, it's interesting because there's plenty of direct overlap between space and climate, too. I was talking to like a hyperspectral satellite company earlier today, and they're doing really, really cool stuff in terms of using satellites to monitor methane emissions, you know, or like look for leaks and pipelines and cool stuff like that. Just kind of curious, you know, did that ever occur to you as an important path or what made you decide that going into the EV charging space was a better use of your time? Yeah, I mean, there's this like really cool phenomena that astronauts experience called the overseer effect or something like that, where they basically go to space and they look down and they have this like wide realization that all of Earth's, you know, conflicts are trivial and geopolitical disputes are trivial. And basically we're on Mm. one big spaceship. (laughs) I like to call it Spaceship Earth, right? And obviously I wasn't a NASA astronaut, but frequently I would watch the rocket launches. And on one of those missions, we were doing like a Lagrange five entry mission and we took the rocket like way out into deep space. And basically the rear facing camera had this, you know, picture of the earth getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And this like beautiful blue green globe was kind of diminishing in the distance. And I think I, at that point really realized the cosmic perspective. There's some like major important challenges to solve on that that blue green 
globe and like I should actually go do those things. You know, like I had spent <laughs> a bunch of time and energy sending things away from the earth. But honestly, in reality, there's more opportunity and there's more meaningful impacts to make, at least in the next, I would say, decade here on earth. So right. at that point, that was like 2018. And at that point, I was like, okay, I'm going to put my head down and like while working at SpaceX, try to figure out what's the biggest, highest leveraged way I can make an impact on the climate. I actually, you know, started off like thinking about load shifting and balancing the grid and solving the duck mm -hmm. curve problem. And then yeah. realized that the EV fast charging industry was like totally boondoggled and needed a lot of support. And that was fundamentally important to solve because in talking with people, it was like their primary consideration when adopting an EV. Like everybody's like, hey, I can't charge my car. Why would I buy an EV? That's, this is like a bad idea, right? Right. So I founded Electric Era basically to make literally EV fast charging ubiquitous, affordable, and reliable. That's like the objective of the business. Great, great tie-in into what you're doing at Electric Era. And those two kind of those problems that you identified or the other one that you looked at around load shifting and, you know, when there's high demand on the grid versus when there's not and how that kind of ties into and sometimes run counter to when there's a lot of clean energy available. That's all ultimately like related to EV charging as well. So I'm sure that's stuff that you're still still thinking about. Yeah, definitely. It's, it's a super challenging and interesting problem, the load shifting problem and the duck curve in general. And it's going to make like the economics of energy pretty wacky in the future. But in general, I think we're like well on the way to solving that problem. But I still, you know, in thinking about working on that specific problem, I think that identified we were well on the way towards it. And instead of focusing on that, focused on like basically solving like the distribution challenges, the distribution grid level challenges associated with onboarding bulk amounts of EV fast charging. Like, yeah. Transmission level grid, lots of problems there, lots of good people. Distribution level grid, lots of problems, not as many good people. So decided to bias towards distribution grid level issues associated with getting kind of clean energy into eat clean cars, ultimately. Yeah, that's probably a good place to start now that we kind of will dive deeper into the electric air side of things. So what are some of those kind of key problems that you identified at the level of the distribution grid? And how have you all worked to start to build solutions that mitigate some of them? Yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, zooming out for a second, the grid is is like probably one of the most impactful, arguably one of the most important pieces of technology humani humanity has ever created, which is maybe a bold thing to say, but I think it's actually true. And it's broken up between like transmission level grid and distribution level grid. So transmission level grid is everything that goes from you know, the generation facilities to substations and distribution level grid is everything from substations to our homes. Right. So those are the kind of poles we see when we drive around town. That's the distribution level grid. Yeah. And the kind of key realization that I had when I was investigating this problem was basically like those distribution level grid wires have fundamental power limits and they're actually pretty low because they were designed for applications in the early 20th century that were very static, <laughs> like power draw was super static, right? Um, and we put up all these wires and we're like, good, good to go, everyone. Right. And then fast forward 2020, let's say 2008, 2012, you know, Tesla starts building these amazing cars. They start putting up high power, fast charging stations. And we realize, hey, there's actually like very rapid high power transients being introduced to these very thin wires. So I basically thought to myself, okay, like, well, how do we solve that problem? And how do we do it without kind of rebuilding that entire distribution grid because that's extremely expensive and it basically takes forever. Yeah, that may well happen too and would be ideal. But yeah, you're right. It's going to take a very long time. 
Yeah, I mean, it probably does. And honestly, it will happen slowly over time because we're just going to keep consuming more and more power on the distribution grid. Uh, same thing is true of the transmission grid. I think there needs to be a lot of physical work done there as well. Right. But to like, from a corporate perspective, like we basically thought to ourselves, okay, let's like make a technology toolkit that allows us to kind of shortcut that whole process and quickly add premium, high power, fast charging anywhere on the grid. And we do that with a battery backed and software optimized real time EV fast charging station that allows us to use a battery buffer to distribute load to EVs that are charging at our charging stations. So that whole product is called PowerNode. It's basically a, a super reliable source of premium fast charging that we can put on gas stations, at the gas stations, at convenience stores, at any sort of retail outlet very quickly in about 10 times less time than traditionally takes with upgrading the grid. Got it. Yeah, super interesting. I think it's also a, a good opportunity to, to make a slight distinction or just, you know, highlight the distinction between electricity and kind of what you're talking about of like actual like when there's a use case for really high power, like fast draw, fast discharge, because right. both of them are going to be challenging for EVs. You know, they say something, I wish I had the statistics on hand, but by 2030, something like two or three percent of all energy produced in the U.S. might go towards charging EVs. So that in and of itself is its own challenge of we need to produce a lot more energy. Mm -hmm. But then there's also the added component of everything you're speaking to of the ability to deliver power very quickly is its own unique phenomenon that requires its own considerations. So yeah, it's an important one to keep in mind as well. Yeah, that's right. I think like the way that I think about it is that there's like this massive supply chain of electricity that needs to be retrofitted essentially and converted from a base source of energy at generation facilities that's traditionally carbon intensive mm -hmm. to one that's fully electric. So that's like the generation energy supply part of the equation. And then that clean energy needs to go along transmission lines, along distribution lines and into cars. And mm -hmm. we can do that with slow charging for a large amount of use cases. People do traditionally charge at their homes, but mm -hmm. as more low income and middle income drivers start to purchase EVs, I think the needs for fast charging actually become quite extreme. And I, I actually suspect that about 40 to 45% of total electricity moved into cars in the future will actually be done at public EV fast charging, which is why we kind of skated to where the pup was going and stood up a, a product right. ecosystem around that use case because there really wasn't a lot of innovation there yet. Yeah. And it makes sense to me, you know, living in New York City, I don't have a car right now and I'm fortunate to be able to live the lifestyle I want to without it, but I'm probably in like the only city in the US where that's like really tangibly possible. And if I wanted to go get an EV, then all this conversation would be even more pertinent to me because there's no chance that I'd be able to, to charge it living on the fourth story of a walk-up <laughs> building in Brooklyn. So, yeah. And the other component is, you know, the unfortunate reality is there's a lot of work already being done to deploy public charging stations. And that's great. But, you know, on average, like if you look at three chargers on the street of Brooklyn, one of them is not working properly at any given point in time. So yeah, confluence of different challenges around what's already been deployed and what needs to be deployed. Yeah, exactly. And in the scope of the problem is pretty immense. It hit me like I was in Hawaii. I was walking through like the parking lot of like a Walmart and I looked around and there was like literally like 2000 cars in the parking lot. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, each of those cars needs 10 kilowatt hours of energy to meet its daily driving needs. And then if you look at the entire U.S. fleet, it suddenly becomes even much larger. So basically, I just, you know, in the early days, of this company did like a quick hand calc to figure out how much bulk amount of energy we need to put into that fleet, what the associated quantity of ports were at the average power charge rate, 
and then quickly found out that the number of charging stations we need is like a large, very large amount. And I was like, hmm, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people working on this. This seems pretty messed up. So, you know, started to think about kind of that magic shortcut, right? That's the power node toolkit. We can just kind of shortcut that whole grid upgrading process, which by the way, utilities actually love because they just kind of want to get premium fast charging in their service territories without like a lot of bureaucratic holdup. They're heavily incentivized to do that. So we started to kind of think about what that would look like from a product and tech standpoint, and we put together the power node. Excellent. Yeah. And I'm curious to, to hear a little bit more about when you were first designing the system, you'd identified some of the challenges that we've spoken to already. There is still pertinent element of kind of load shifting to what you're doing by putting a battery in as a wedge between the distribution grid and the actual fast charger. But what did that look like when you were doing kind of like the tech exploration and putting the tech stack together? I'm curious, like, how long the research phase took, what the different battery systems you looked at were and how you ultimately kind of arrived at the V1 model. Yeah, that's a great question. So basically, like the goal that we aim for is the maximum amount of electricity for the least amount of cost and the least amount of power capacity in installed. And you can quickly back out the needs of the battery from those kind of driving engineering criteria. So we knew we didn't want a massive, big, kind of like really energy dense mega pack style battery because it would be super expensive. They're like $1.3 million. That doesn't make any sense. Instead, we figured out we needed like a very power intensive battery, one that was able to rapidly distribute power for like 20 to 30 minutes. Mm. And then I realized basically, hey, it, the battery is just actually a small component of this because a large degree of magic actually comes from the software that operates the entire charging station. So we brought on a really talented hire from SpaceX and put together kind of the adjacent and controlling software stack on top of the battery. And we're able to get even more leverage with you know, a series of kind of proprietary algorithms that we developed. But then we realized, oh boy, well, if we control the chargers too, we can even get more leverage out of the entire combined product. So mm -hmm. from a product arc perspective, it started with just kind of the battery component, which is like the obvious thing. And then it went to the software and then it went to the full charging station. And then it finally concluded with, let's make this a real-time autonomous and intelligently controllable device. So we actually literally operate the charging station at sub-second frequencies and get like even more leverage out of the whole product, which allows us to accomplish our core objectives of making it very affordable, installable anywhere, and operating it in a highly reliable fashion. I think that's the big, that final one is like the big unlock, like reliability is terrible in the industry. And we literally engineered our entire product ecosystem from the ground up with our PowerNode OS software to make it as reliable as possible. Like we want to surpass Tesla. Yeah. Like Tesla's not reliable enough in our opinions. So that's where we're going with the product. And then, you know, in 2022, we fully proved it out with a demo with Excel Energy and Epri and, you know, had a live station in for about four months in Knoxville, Tennessee, which was pretty cool. And now we're on the kind of the phase of the journey where we're just like scaling up to try to meet commercial demand. So lots to do over the next several years <laughs> in that capacity. Yeah, no doubt. And we'll get back to the deployment front. I'm curious on the, or I guess the first thing I'd say is it was interesting, the last guest that I had on was energy storage in the grid connected capacity. But for them, he kind of spoke to a similar story where a decent amount of their differentiation is actually in the operation and being really focused on getting as much leverage out of data as possible because they're interfacing with power markets, trying to figure out like when's the most valuable time for them to sell electricity that they're storing. It sounds like you're thinking about 
and similar things on the data side of you're taking in a decent amount of data around demand, power availability, and trying to match and optimize around that. Speak a little bit more to like what some of the key data considerations are that the software ingests and helps you optimize around. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, basically, like my experiences at SpaceX where software makes the rocket land itself. Software makes Dragon autonomously dock with the International Space Station. Software makes the Starlink satellites work incredibly well. So software has just like always been at the heart and soul of this company. And it, and I agree with your previous guest. I mean, it's basically all software 24-7 in 2023 and beyond, right? We live in a software-effectuated world. Mm. Our, and I think the most compelling and high market, high total addressable market businesses of the 21st century will be built at the confluence of hardware and, and software. You know, if you have bits giving life to atoms, then you really can create a lot of shareholder value. So basically from a data perspective, it, I think the right way to answer this question is kind of like walk you through the layers of PowerNode. And it, the base layer is like the core technological toolkit, right? It's the grid unblocking toolkit that solves all the energy problems that basically allows us to deploy anywhere on the grid. At that level of this, the technology stack, we're thinking a lot about what cars have been here, when they showed up, how long they were here, mm. what their charging profiles look like, how their state of charge and charge rates were affected by temperature. We then use that to make predictions about what will come that ultimately feed into our load management algorithms that then basically dictate how we control the charger power rates, how we charge from the grid with the battery, when we decide to discharge the battery. All of that comes together in it, like ultimately just a simple energy balance equation Yeah, that's time-weighted. So data at that stage is like, hey, all car-centric, grid-centric, and usage-centric. We feed that into our power controller algorithm, which is basically what allows us to operate above the grid limit. And then we distribute premium fast charging at that point. So yeah. that's like the base layer. Think of it as like the fiber optics of, of the internet, right? And then on top of that, you know, we have like all these other basically software services we provide to our customers, such as our store power backup, software service, our grid services, monetization service, our pump to store conversion software service, mm. all of those. And actually are also just generally the charging station operational service. All of those like mm -hmm. have their own data considerations. Like one example is for charging operations, like how do we make the charging station as reliable as possible? Well, we collect a yeah. huge amount of data at as low a possible level in the software stack, like firmware adjacent on the hardware components. And then we feed that data into our autonomous fitter algorithms, which is our fault detection, isolation, and recovery algorithm so that we can basically autonomously respond to failures before they occur. And so that the driver experience is like flawless. Yeah. So that's like the data that comes out of that stack. But each stack has its own challenges, but at the end of the day, it's all software and data enabled. Yeah, and I'm glad we kind of already started addressing the reliability question because it's obviously front of mind for you. And I was going to ask, you know, like, how do you, you want to win on the reliability front? The logical follow-up question is, you know, how do you win on the reliability <laughs> front? So yeah. you already started speaking to that a little bit, which is good. And the other thing I'd say that's ideally, you know, really exciting about data is that the more of it you ingest and the more that you deploy stations, it should compound in terms of what the value is to it because you're building yeah. insights over time and there's so much more in the tech stack globally that's being developed to make sense of data in a powerful way that should continue to, to be a high leverage point for you all. And it's also like an advantage to getting started early because there is some first mover advantage to collecting and having that data. 
That's 100% correct. I think to answer the first question, you went on reliability by being obsessed with reliability at all levels of the software stack, at all levels of the consumer experience. Mm -hmm. To address the second part of that question, from our perspective, we don't even think of ourselves as just an EV charging company. We're a car refill company. Mm. And that broader perspective actually is super key to operators in this space. Like you should not just be thinking about how can I get electricity in the cars? That's like the easy thing. The hard thing is how do you make the broad end-to-end experience for a driver dreamless and compelling and as affordable and value additive to that driver as possible? Mm. So when you think about it from that perspective, you start to think, okay, well, what about all the data on at the charging station that you can kind of collect and the insights about right. the driver experience. So we're like starting to go way out in our product roadmap and already package solutions to solve those kinds of car refill type considerations, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that's, it's great that you're taking that perspective. And, you know, incentives is another important point on the reliability front too. I'm not the most well-versed in exactly how all of the federal funding for deploying charging station goes, but my understanding is that to some extent for some developers, there's a lot of like kind of front-loaded incentive to get stations deployed and not always as much incentive tied to like, okay, does it actually still work two years down the line from a reliability perspective? But you all have a very vested interest, obviously, and that the stations are always a good customer experience and continue to improve over time. That's right. I mean, the most frustrating thing in the world is that most charging stations are like behind a target in some weird location that when you get there is you know, kind of blocked up with caution tape that, and it says like charging stations broken, sorry. Like that's the driver's experience today with traditional approaches. So we've actually structured our business model around having that long-term shared incentive and alignment with our customers to ensure that high level. And I want to get back to business model, but, you know, first, maybe let's get into a little bit more on the deployment side and what's happening in 2023, because in addition to reliability, like getting a lot of these stations out in the world is obviously one of the most important things, like that's what's going to help abate emissions in the long term. So how many stations do you all have up and running right now? And kind of what's the next plan? What's the plan for the next year look like in terms of deployment? Yeah, so so I, w- I would say like due to the kind of outstanding team we've assembled and the advantaged product we've had, we've created rather, is we've basically been able to attain like a pretty high degree of growth. Like we were founded in 2020, we've closed multiple venture back financing rounds. We've raised millions of dollars. We've fully proven out and deployed our first power node in Knoxville, Tennessee. Right now, excited to announce we've signed eight customers in nine different states and are currently in various phases of implementation on 19 deployments. So this is like very good from a kind of a growth of the business perspective. And it positions us more importantly, well along the way to our 2030 goal of having 10,000 power node charging stations installed by 2030. And we specifically target gas stations, convenience stores, and other retail locations because mm. we believe those are advantaged locations for drivers to be. There's good food, there's good amenities, there's better wife, there's you know, possibly Wi-Fi, there's restrooms. Like, yeah, I think there's, you know, we're working to create, like, again, that comprehensive car racial experience that's desirable on all angles, not just on the electricity into the car angle. And it makes a decent amount of sense or a lot of sense in many cases, I imagine, for those stakeholders too. I think you've talked about this, but if you think about a gas station business model, they've never really made a massive amount of, or it's difficult, I should say, to make a ton of your money on the gas itself. Like that's a commodity business. So they can actually sometimes make more money from convenience store sales and stuff like that. So they certainly want to continue to attract folks to their locations 
as the transition to EVs happens. But the same is also true for grocery stores to an extent, like the margins on groceries are razor thin too. So I can see why that'd be. Those are fruitful stakeholders to partner with, not just for the customers, but for those for those parties as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons we love convenience stores and gas stations and typically retail locations is that they have an existential need for this product. Like their entire business is built around slick traffic. They need people to go to their store so they can sell them goods and services. Historically, that's more of like the standard fare that you experience in a convenience store today Mm -hmm. because the dwell time is a lot shorter with a gas car. In the future, I think convenience stores are mapping to a future where there's compelling food offerings, there's Mm -hmm. compelling Wi-Fi, there's a good restroom. And, you know, just in general, products and services inside that convenience store will, will match the kind of dwell time that the car industry is able to offer. So we're basically providing them that initial toolkit to get started so that they can modernize their business for the 21st century. Mm -hmm. Got it. Understood. And what does it look like when you go out and prepare to deploy a power node station? There's a lot of different stakeholders involved, obviously. And I'm curious kind of about the stakeholder management and also the financing of how those stations get built. And then I guess thirdly, obviously, like the logistics and the actual, you know, putting infrastructure on site. Walk us through that a little bit. I think that'd be really insightful for listeners. Yeah. I mean, it's a big ordeal. Like you have to do a lot of things well. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And that's why like high market companies are typically hardware oriented because with high stakes comes high value, which comes high Mm. revenue, which comes from which comes high market. So yeah, I mean, like generally we have to provision like a highly reliable full EV fast charging station, including all the chargers, our on-site edge compute system, all the safety, high voltage electronics, an inverter that couples DC to AC power, the batteries, and a variety of other things. Like all of that needs to be selected, engineer tested, software tested, and actually installed (laughs) in the field. It also needs to have like a comprehensive supply chain behind it with kind of real-time insights and supply chain management systems in place. Imagine like atoms all over the world assembling like in the time domain at the exact same instance. Like that's what you're trying to manage. On the non-hardware side of things, like the construction side of things, you actually have to like dig holes and trench and conduit and lay wire and plug into the grid and talk to the utility and get a permit and talk to the local authority having jurisdiction and do all these things. And Mm. when all of that's done, you have a charging station in the ground. (laughs) <laughs> one right. one charging station <laughs> at that point. So kind of clean tech. on. Then you get to operate it. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you get to operate. Exactly. So it just becomes even more of a challenge. But that that's where software comes in. So that's actually fairly automatable and autonomous, actually, for us, at least. But the real challenge here is not just to do that once, it's to do it at scale. So like we think about kind of building engines or systems internally for each of these functions, like the sales function has its own like engine of growth and then implementation and then software and supply chain. Like we have to stand up all of these apparatuses in-house that have to operate in phase and in sync with one another to facilitate the bulk deployment of fast charging stations across the grid. And only then, if we do that well, can we hit that 10,000 power node number by 2030. Got it. So it's a lot. <laughs> but it's, it's totally <laughs> yeah. fun and, and it's a great time as well. It's like so cool to work with <laughs> hardware with real things in the field. Like I love that. Yeah. And you're at the cutting edge of a lot of different things. You're obviously sitting at the intersection of a lot of big trends around electrification and vehicles, but a lot of the other things that we've pointed to in this conversation already, whether it be edge compute or whatever else, you know, folks might have picked on in the 30 minutes so far. There's 
plenty of things that we could probably talk about for 20 minutes on their own. So I imagine that makes it fun as well. Yeah, I, I think like for me personally, I think my mission statement from a really young age was just like, go work on the major technological verticals that will unlock global productivity for society. And I just love waking up every day, like working on next gen software, next gen edge compute, next gen hardware, even if it's at the crossroads of like kind of an antiquated system with like the utilities, because those folks yeah. definitely need help. Like utilities are super smart. Again, they provision and oversee, like I think in my opinion, probably one of the most complicated and significant technologies that we've ever developed. So it's like super smart industries, but like lots of processes in place. And most people in utilities want to go faster and they're looking for solutions like PowerNode that allow us to deploy fast charging in their service territories much quicker. Yeah, it's important perspective because I think sometimes when folks get frustrated by the rate of deployment of you know, certain clean energy or climate technologies, it's easy to point at the utilities and be like, these guys are the problem or whatever, you know, but it's important to remember that they have very important jobs to do. And I do not doubt that there are a lot of people at those organizations that do really good work and think really conscientiously about a lot of the same things that you and I do. A hundred percent. And their kind of governance entities are like heavily forcing them to find solutions that accelerate transportation electrification. That's like a whole mm -hmm. kind of mission and tagline within the utility industry that we hear from a lot of partners. Mm -hmm. So they want it. They really do. And they're like being judged on it internally if they can hit it. Yeah. And that brings me back to the financing component. I'm curious whether there are incentives that you all unlock by deploying stations. And that's part of what's making the economics work really well for you all, or whether that's like actually not as the public funding side isn't as big of a component of the picture right now. Yeah. So like our kind of guiding philosophy as a business from a product perspective is to make the product as affordable and reliable as possible. So affordability is like a major, major focus. We do cost down efforts to make the product commercially viable without incentives. Like that's our goal. We don't want it ballooning costs for our customers that's only reasonable to install, but hold it upon the U.S. government paying for it. That's not good for anyone. We want to basically have a commercially viable standalone attractive solution. And we've engineered that. Our product is extremely affordable and we make good money as a business. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, there definitely are incentives, specifically those passed in the Inflation Reduction Act that provide very, very handsome incentives for our customer base, specifically the storage tax credit. It's like a massive, massive thing for the broader renewables and distributed energy resource industry. Understood. That's a big one. And then there's like tons of money with the NEBI funding program. And, you know, like the Department of Energy has like, you know, a bunch of money that they're deploying as well for clean energy demonstrations and stuff like that. Yeah. So there's plenty of financing out there and incentives specifically yeah. to help make it even more compelling for our customers. And from a pure revenue model, is it getting paid for kilowatt hour discharge into cars? More complicated than that? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty simple. I mean, like we dual monetize the assets. So we basically sell the charging station. We make profit margin and free cash flow off of each hardware install that we do. And then we operate the station and provide kind of a bundle of services that unlock more revenue, more reliability, more performance for our customers. So we get paid for those on a yearly basis to provide those services. So that's things like our reliability assurance product, which guarantees a certain high level of uptime, 98% actually for our customers, which is extremely high to give you kind of you and your listeners yeah. in context, <laughs> the average industry 
charging reliability is like 50% right now, with the exception of Tesla, it's like really bad. There's some great studies that people should check out. So our reliability in our our field testing and every day in the lab is like literally actually like near 100%. And it's because we've vertically integrated the entire software stack to solve everything from payments to charging session management to kind of the fitter reliability algorithms that we talked about, charger initiation issues, like the whole gamut, all done, mm. all, all root caused, and then solutions yeah. in place. So that's that's what people are getting with a power node charging session. You're getting a guaranteed, highly reliable charge. Yeah, got it. Well, I'm glad I asked because that betrayed my own ignorance around you're making most of your money from selling to the stakeholder where the station is deployed less from the actual kind of folks that are coming through to charge their vehicles. That's correct. Yeah, we enable our customers to provide premium and compelling EV fast charging at their properties and they create capture that revenue. Got it. And they capture additional share wallet from the drivers at their facilities. That goes back to our earlier point around kind of the throughput, what traffic or what have you being one of the most important metrics for some of those folks. We've identified a lot of things that go into deploying a power node. I'm curious to ask it straight. What's kind of like the hardest thing right now? Like what keeps you up at night in the present moment around deploying a station or could even be like the rest of the business outside of the actual deployment? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, the founder's job is like mainly human capital you know, recruiting basically, like we, we focus Mm. on like hiring, like extremely good people. And I take that job very seriously. That's like my, one of my full-time jobs. So right now we're hiring a lot of really talented people. So if you're interested in applying for a job with Electric Era, go to our website, check us out. We'd love to look at your resume. Retweet. Retweet. I'd encourage them as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, there's lots of good climate jobs opening up here and across the industry, of course, but that's like an area where I, I'm spending a lot of time currently. And then, of course, just growing those engines we talked about earlier. So making sure implementation is like always getting better, faster, stronger, like like that one song. And then say better, better, faster, stronger. Exactly. <laughs> I'm a big Daft Punk fan. Those guys are great. And then same thing with sales, like sell more every quarter. Go, go, go. Like we have to do that and develop all those processes to be more efficient. So basically, you know, scaling up the business in short. Yeah, uh, makes a lot of sense. I mean, people, it almost sounds trite to be like, you know, what we need to do is is scale, but there's a reason that that's what folks always come back to. Like, <laughs> yeah. that, is what, that is what it is all about. <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, in many ways, going back to the kind of the beginning of the conversation, that is what is so powerful about PowerNode is that it's that kind of tech toolkit to scale faster. Like we provide utilities, customers, and drivers an advantaged toolkit to get to market faster to more rapidly install ubiquitous, affordable, and reliable fast charging across the grid and across the country. Yeah. Get the stations deployed and charge cars quickly. Makes a lot of sense. Zooming out, there's a ton of interesting stuff happening in the charging industry. This last month has been like just a cavalcade of folks adopting Tesla's North American charging standard. Just curious for your perspective, like what are some of the most interesting things that you see happening in the industry? What does some of that potentially mean for electric era? And there's probably a bunch of other stuff that like you see that's super interesting and compelling to you that I'm not even privy to. So pretty open-ended question, but I'm curious what's what's catching your eye when you're not busy hiring folks and selling stations. Yeah, I mean, I, I think to just speak on the kind of NAX connector, I think that that was like an incredibly smart move. And I think it's definitely going to benefit the drivers. Like that is the right move for the industry, in my opinion. It's by far a better connector. It's more usable. Like you could quickly install it. You can lift it with one hand. It's a much better product experience. And I think it's the right hardware substrate for the industry going forward. So mm. 
we've been navigating our partners, our charger manufacturing partners towards that for a long time. And mm. I was super excited to see their announcement of that recently. And we will be baselining, installing that at all of our charging stations going forward, because that's where the whole industry is going. So personally, I'm very excited about that. I think that, you know, kind of beyond the connector, I think that there's many challenging things that need to come together. I think generally one thing I'm pretty excited about, but acknowledging that needs a lot more work is kind of like a permitting process makeover. I think mm. there's yeah. some utilities out there. I think like Pacific Core Power is one example. I, I might be wrong on that, but there's companies out there that are like bulk batching the approval of EV fast charging and distributed energy resources. I would highly encourage all utilities to kind of relook at your process of approving distributed energy resources, new renewables, or EV fast charging infrastructure onto the grid and like massively retrofit it because we truly need like a wartime effort to do this rapidly. Yeah. So permitting overhaul needs to happen. It's starting to happen, but it, it needs a lot more work. It's something I don't have a lot of influence over other than just developing a good product that can kind of streamline it. But yeah. generally, I think that's a big area for improvement for the industry. Yeah. And the influence point you just raised is an interesting one for me, too, because I think about this a lot on the permitting side. I read about it a decent amount. I hear folks like yourself talk about it. And that is one of the main questions I come back to is obviously like this needs to happen at the level of utilities and the federal government and state governments and stuff like that. But it's an interesting story for me to track over time, too, is like who else can influence and accelerate that process? Because ideally, there's ways that we can all contribute to it, whether it's by voting, even just being conscious of it or building companies that support in some capacity as you are. So I don't have an answer for that broader question of I'm posing around like, how do we all influence the permitting and the deployment of new infrastructure in the US? But that's something that I'm curious and thinking a lot about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, if people are curious, like my somewhat limited understanding of how this whole process works is, is basically that the permitting utility court, or sorry, the public utility commissions, which are like the governing bodies for utilities, they basically take their prompts from state legislature and to a degree, I, I believe also from the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission and from the federal government as a result. So I just think like if you want to transition to a sustainable future, advocacy and vocalness around specifically speeding up permitting and deployments is the highest leverage way that your listeners could do could benefit the broader objective here. Yeah. Because basically that makes it all the way down to the PUCs, the public utility commissions. And then that gets percolated down into the utilities. And then utilities yeah. are like, okay, I guess we got to do this. Let's go to work. And then that opens up a lot of trajectories of, for interesting motion that can help accelerate this journey. Yeah, that's a good point. I'll continue to hammer that and pull it out for listeners and readers and continue to think about it and try to provide folks with really actionable opportunities to go go and do some of that advocacy. But it starts with being conscious of it. So I'm glad that it came up in this conversation too. <laughs> we kind of asked the hive mind before we sat down to record this, what folks were curious about in terms of talking about deploying EV charging stations. And one of the really good questions that came up out of that that I want to make sure we get to is we'll need to grow just the availability of energy in the US a lot in order to charge. Maybe. As you said, like those 2,000 cars sitting in that Hawaiian parking lot in the future. Not necessarily a question that you or I are neither like inherently experts on, but what's your perspective on how we grow load in the US to match the demand that's coming? Obviously, your solution helps to an extent by creating kind of 
an additional wedge in the distribution network. But what other thoughts do you have? Yeah, I mean, you know, there's one golden rule of life, which is people respond to incentives and so do businesses. So if there's a projected load growth, utilities and generation facilities are going to like be more than happy to facilitate that. I think that those entities need to be equipped with the proper toolkit of affordable and reliable technologies that allow them to onboard that load in a natively renewable fashion. Yeah. Like that's a super key point because a lot of people are going to like default to the what work solution. So, you know, they're going to want to make sure as they build out that load that the load actually works. So we just need to continue to invest in affordable, highly reliable, renewable technologies such as solar and wind and invest in you know, bringing down the cost associated with the buffering storage, all of that solves kind of like the generation level problem. And then I'm not much of an expert here, but starting, I think around the 2035, the transmission grid is going to start to get like super throttled. And basically we're going to have these power grid limits occur there. Yeah. So there's a lot of, I, I think folks working on basically retrofitting and rebuilding that infrastructure so that we can get renewables from the edge to the city centers. So again, I would encourage everybody to kind of zoom out and consider the full supply chain of how clean electricity gets generated, stored, transmitted, distributed, and into the car. Yeah. And then technology people and, and entrepreneurs, like make sure you're working hard on that technological toolkit you're building out. Yeah. You know, battery cell supply chain that needs to come to support that. The You're building out the supply chain for solar that needs to support that load growth and addressing all of the above issues. And then if we do all that right, all this new load will be renewable. And that's what we should do because that's like the platonic ideal outcome here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, a lot of things that you identified are front of mind for me. Energy storage, both from a deployment and technical innovation perspective, seems like a pretty intuitive critical area to enable deeper renewable energy penetration. Same goes for the transmission grid. And that goes back to what we talked about permitting. You need to be able to build that more quickly. Sometimes like a new transmission line will take 15, 20 years to go from when folks first proposed it to like, all right, now we actually have sign off to go build this thing. So that probably needs to happen more quickly. And we probably shouldn't forget about other sources of clean energy that have been around for a long time, hydroelectric, nuclear, et cetera. But we don't have to get too deep in the weeds of the nuclear energy debate or anything like that. Yeah. Well, ironically, I, I did my minor in nuclear in my undergrad and my master's. So I like generally am wholly supportive of nuclear. I think, excuse me, nuclear. I always have a hard time pronouncing that one, <laughs> but I, I do, I do think, and I identified actually back in 2010 that it was pretty bureaucratic and slow and therefore expensive. Yeah. And again, that goes back to kind of the, the wartime production board style effort that we need to put forth across the permitting of these assets. Like we definitely need nuclear, so let's build it and let's make it economically competitive to a degree. I think fission is kind of locked into its cost structure. Perhaps fusion could be a way to enable a 100x reduction in, in cost of electricity. But I, I suspect that's probably not going to happen. And I actually think the killer app fusion is going to be terrestrial nucleosynthesis, which is something I'm super excited about starting around like 2040. But, Another podcast on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's super interesting stuff. People should look it up. But generally, yeah, I think nuclear is good and we, we need more of it as long as it economically makes sense. And the challenge is I'd love to see more of the plants get built, but they're going to take at least five or 10 years to, to build. So we need to be folks would need to be planning on building them right now. I don't know, maybe, you know, some of the small modular reactor stuff will help too, but I kind of tend to agree with the line of reasoning that you were hinting at, which is we got to deploy the stuff that we can deploy, Yeah, that we know how to deploy, that's fast to deploy, 
we do have to do all of it, but we can have a bias towards the stuff that we know we can get out there. Yeah. And, and there are like a lot of really cool people working on small modular nuclear reactors, like new scale, I think is pretty much the leader there. There's actually a SpaceX startup, SpaceX founded startup. I can't remember their name that's working on this as well. So lots of good innovation. But again, all those people, in my opinion, are going to run up against that old regulatory boondoggle and they're just going to get stopped. And that's the unfortunate truth of the matter. So unless you can innovate around that and get the regulators mm -hmm. on your team to go fast and deploy, 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 yeah. shout out to your Shaw, then you're yeah. stuck. You're stuck in the water, even if you have this amazing technology. Yeah. Well, Quincy, thanks so much for the wide ranging conversation. I like how we included everything from a shout out to Jiggershaw at the end <laughs> to talking about load shifting and nuclear fusion, but most importantly, you know, enabling fast charging and fast deployment of it throughout the US. Before we depart, you already made one really good call to action, which is for folks that might be interested in working with you to check you all out and apply for a job if it feels compelling. Anything else that you'd want to share in terms of where to follow along with the story, announcements to keep an eye out for, other calls to action? Yeah, I would say uh, for everyone interested, follow us on our Twitter, follow us on our LinkedIn. We're very active. We share a lot about what we're doing on a daily basis. We're sharing some really cool technology on a daily basis in those socials. And then if you want even more deep insights, follow us on our newsletter. We have a newsletter sign up and we'll be publishing a bunch. Keep people informed. Wait. Yeah, well, I'm excited to publish this. I'm excited to write a newsletter about it too. I'm nice. excited to link out to y'all's newsletter and my newsletter. It's this nested web of <laughs> a million newsletters that the world yeah. is, is quickly accelerating towards. 10,000 power node stations by 2030, 10,000 climate tech newsletters by 2030, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But yeah, man, it's been really fun and I'm stoked to keep in touch. Thanks for being here. Yeah, same. Thanks, Nick. It's great to talk. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.